0: Welcome back to The Dissolve Podcast for Episode 25, Infinite Possibilities, Infinite Gauntlets Edition. I'm your host, Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at The Dissolve. We surpassed 50 reviews on iTunes, thanks everyone, so Scott Tobias's girls got their promised gift. He's off on a family vacation, so I'm sitting in as host twice in a row. This week, Guardians of the Galaxy hits theaters, taking Marvel's cinematic universe into a bigger and more cosmic phase that's more like the Star Wars movies than the Spider-Man movies. Without getting into plot spoilers of any kind, we talk about where this bigger, broader film is taking us in Marvel continuity, where the comics are coming from, and what we hope to see from here. Also this week, we interview LA Weekly's Amy Nicholson about her new book, On Tom Cruise and her new outlook on Tom Cruise. We ask our game players whether they're game to play a game about games, then pull the interns off the back bench for a special edition of 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. Guardians of the Galaxy hits theaters the same day this podcast hits computers. It's the much-anticipated last Marvel Studios movie of the year and the last before the second wave of the Marvel Cinematic Universe ends in 2015 with Joss Whedon's Avengers 2. It's also the first real cosmic Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. The Thor movie spent some time away from Earth, but Guardians drops the story in the middle of a bustling galaxy full of new worlds, new races, and especially new politics, more space opera than superhero story. It's a bold new direction for the Marvel line, and if the film takes off, it could potentially pave the way for big screen Marvel stories to go anywhere, into new genres, into much more ambitious storytelling, even than the films we've seen so far. We know most of you haven't seen the film yet, so we're going to keep this as spoiler-free as possible and focus more on the big picture than on the film's plot points. Here to discuss the film are... Keith Phipps. and a special guest and uh, comics expert and Eisner nominee Oliver Sava. Hi Oliver. Howdy. Welcome to the Dissolve podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So guys, is this like is this just a weird one off for Marvel? Do you do you think this is opening up a whole new direction? Like where where can we go from here?
1: To infinity and beyond. <laughs> uh, I think it's definitely the start of a new direction if anything it's just expanding things in a at a to a level that we haven't seen at this point everything has been as you said mostly earthbound uh very i guess not very personal but mostly uh focusing on a single character and this you just get uh dropped right into this big ensemble piece all kinds of as you said new worlds new races just an entirely different environment that uh james gunn and uh everybody involved in the movie uh, realizes really really well so i think that it could definitely mean more of this type of marvel movie in the future
2: well i think what's interesting to me about it is is that it is you know there are definite ties to the marvel universe uh, which i don't want to spoil but they're very tangential at this point i think they're obviously they're going to tie into a larger story but uh, you know, if you if you were to show someone this movie without who had no knowledge of the Marvel universe uh, at all, I don't think think they would uh, would necessarily find the connection. Which I think is actually interesting because it means you can kind of use this big tent of the idea of a Marvel universe to tell all sorts of different stories.
0: Yeah. And this, I mean, there there's so many teasers for different stories in here. Like we walk away with. Off the top of my head, at least three pretty major plot threads dangling, and there's so much going on in the film itself that it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't feel like they stop at the end and say, "We're not finishing this story; you have to come back next time." Although they do literally in the movie with the Guardians of the Galaxy will be back, right? So yeah. there's certainly a sense of we're we're going to pick up some of these stories later on, but at the same time, I mean, it, it does tell a fairly complete story in and of itself. But it tells a fairly complete story that that feels like the to me, at least like the middle chapter of a long ongoing saga.
1: Yeah. It feels like, uh, exactly what you said. It feels like the start of something far bigger than this, which everything feeds into everything else with this Marvel universe. So, and within I'm, this
2: pocket of the universe, it opens with, with, uh, kind sort of dropping you, as you say, in the middle of all this this intergalactic conflict that and these politics and, and these, uh, you know, shifting alliances and, 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 uh, uh sort of, uh, of uh, barely holding treaties, and it does it, I think, fairly gracefully. I mean, it's a lot of info dump early on, and and I did find my mind kind of wandering once once it just started just dropping a bunch of names. But but uh, uh, it, it is it is sort of it does a pretty good job clearing the brush of, of this corner of, of of the of the galaxy as a place that can tell stories.
1: Yeah, and it's all just presented with that sense of humor that makes it more accessible than it would be if they did it all straight. I mean, the big. Comparison in my head is Green Lantern versus this, and Green Lantern is just kind of humorless space cops uh, without uh, any sort of self-awareness. And uh, that helps this movie just become, it makes that environment far more inviting to the casual viewer. I also think a lot of that had to do with visuals and fun side characters and all that kind of stuff, music all that yeah, plays to, all of that plays together to make this look. to make this as accessible as possible which uh is important because I mean it's Guardians of the Galaxy nobody knows who these characters are on the surface it looks very silly it's a well, raccoon you, and a I tree I mean you and, know
0: who these characters are. Like you've you've read some of the original yeah, stuff I mean, and the current stuff, right?
1: Yeah, I've read I don't really know Old, old Guardians of the Galaxy, which isn't any of these characters except, I guess, Yondu. But this incarnation of the team, I've read things like uh, Annihilation, which was like the miniseries that led into this, which is what the movie reminds me a lot of. And then also uh, like the Guardians of the Galaxy series, which this movie uh, was interestingly enough, it actually says based on the comic by. Uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, which I don't think you get very often in the Marvel movies where they straight up say they're basing this on a specific comic Mm -hmm. by a specific creative team. Uh, And recently going back to reading that first issue of the Abnett-Lanning run, the tone is very, very similar. It's Mm. very funny, essentially. It's uh, got a lot of these sort of uh, reality TV confessionals talking to the characters as they get together in the team and that kind of brings in the humor and the personality that you saw a lot of in this movie.
0: Hmm. I mean, one of the things I was, I guess, most curious about watching this, like I've read, I've I've read none, no Guardians of the Galaxy, but I've read some of like uh, Marvel's older cosmic stuff, and the tone, you know, pretty much anything involving like The Watcher, for instance, Mm -hmm. just has this uh, like very distant abstract kind of 70s tone to it. How much was it necessary to, to bend or recreate these characters to make them fit into the Marvel movie pattern that we're seeing right now that's just kind of action-comedy beat, action-comedy beat, music beat, action-comedy beat over and over again?
1: I mean... Uh... Honestly, they didn't have to change the characters all that much in this movie. They just sort of did uh, some slight personality shifts. They, they figured out an angle to make Drax a, like a comic relief character where he's more of just a sort of silent but deadly brooding character in the comics. Uh, but otherwise, like Rocket, this interpretation of him has been around for, I don't know, I'd say at least eight years at this point and Groot, all that stuff is the same. Gamora. I'm, I don't, I'm not super versed on her backstory, but I think it, uh, it it stayed fairly similar. And again, Peter Quill, I don't know old, old Peter Quill, but at least what's happening in guardians currently in the Marvel universe, it's aligned with what's happening there. But that's also because you have like Brian Michael Bendis, who is the Marvel's creative consultant, for these movies he's been working with these people for i'm assuming since guardians has been in development he knew what the characters were going to be like in the movie so he made the comic reflect that
0: mm-hmm. We had the, uh, Nathan Raven did, I think, a really interesting essay about James Gunn's history as a director, and his specific interests and in how they, they play into this film. And that was written even before seeing the film. Having actually seen it, uh, Keith, I think you had some thoughts in particular about how how Gunn's interests play into the film that we saw, as opposed to the film we were theorizing about.
2: Yeah, I ended up thinking of Nathan's piece a lot, particularly in that opening, and this doesn't give anything away, but the opening scene. Um, kind of brings in childhood trauma and escape, and how uh, you know sort of uh, escape into pop culture and and, and space, uh, which is made quite literal in this film. But uh, uh, it's always been, but it's always been a theme in Gunn's work. as something that Nathan brought up, and, and I think that uh, plays out really nicely here. I mean, I, it's interesting because I think. While we're excited about the possibility of the future of the Marvel movies, I think the big red flag to me is still the just you know the party of ways with uh, Edgar Wright uh, which, mm-hmm. which makes me think that, you know, there's only so many limits to how mm-hmm. a director's personality can manifest themselves in a Marvel film. That said, uh, I felt like this film had a lot of individual flavor and a lot of individual personality and had kind of a look of its own. And maybe that's just by virtue of being set in outer space versus on earth. But, uh, there's sort of these wonderfully realized, uh, alien landscapes and uh, they go to a space prison and, and, uh, <laughs> a, a, a space casino and, uh, I'll put space in front of everything. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's just I thought the production design for this was, was really nice so.
0: I, it to me it looked like a Star Wars movie yeah like it, it felt like uh the Star Wars movies that I have been wanting since the first Star Wars and to some degree it felt a little like watching the first Star Wars for the first time when I was a kid
2: well, a ragtag a bunch of people coming together that don't necessarily get along uh, kind of not necessarily uh, together for the same for the same reasons, to end up fighting for a common cause yeah I think I think there's a lot of that in there and and I think also just sort of the uh gee whiz it's a big spaceship mm-hmm. uh, uh and and also the kind of grunginess of that first star wars mm-hmm. movie too oh, sure. where everything totally. kind of looked a little used and cluttered and there's there's definitely that
0: yeah there's a sense of i mean uh, you know that the star wars tagline is a long time ago in a galaxy far far away and there's that sense that everything is kind of like lived in that the, the mm-hmm. universe is an old place full of old grudges and like all of these races with long histories and that's one of the things i really felt was interesting about this movie was that i and oliver we talked a little bit about this after the film it's not an origin story like it's an origin story for this team but you don't really waste a lot of time on the backstories of characters you and you definitely don't waste any time on the backstory of the universe it's pretty much you're thrown into the middle of it and you're just kind of expected to swim and that at least that that feels like a huge relief like the rest of the the, the phase three movies that we know about so far, Ant-Man, Captain America 3, and Doctor Strange, are again, all kind of potentially earthbound, small, one character focused setting kind of things. And I I think it's going to feel like a step back. Well, I mean, what do you guys think about phase three?
1: I mean, I think Captain America 3 is going to be an ensemble. I can't imagine it not being Captain America, Falcon, Black Widow, and Winter Soldier all together. So at that point, that the Captain America movies have already become team movies at this point. So, uh, Ant-Man, we know that it's a duo. So we got Michael Douglas and Paul Rudd. So that's at least switching up the relationship a little bit. Um, but I've, I have no idea what they're going to do with Doctor Strange. I don't
2: expect it necessarily to be earthbound, though. I think that's sort of another, uh, and there's a whole other uh, it's a different of, cosmic. Yeah, there's different, different like mystical element of the Marvel universe that this kind of opens up for 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 them to explore there. So that could be interesting too. I mean, these are these are interesting. I mean, there's nothing but ambition in terms of the scale and the number of movies that Marvel's going to going to uh, produce, and and maybe sort of the Ant Man glitch aside, maybe there's there's some good indications that they're going to be uh that ambition is going to extend to the, the creativeness so, you know we'll see i mean i think this i thought this was a very a quite strong uh effort i, I and I, I you know I, this will be in my review but 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 uh i'm not sure it always balances everything perfectly but but it's got the right mix of elements and it does a really it does a pretty good job with everything
1: yeah i totally agree i think the big thing is the the switching up of the genres this is not doesn't feel superhero it feels like science fiction and hopefully dr strange won't feel like a superhero movie will feel like a horror movie with a a wizard or a warlock or whatever sorcerer supreme at the center like i want to see just a little more genre variation in there i mean you they incorporated some political stuff into captain america making it more of a sort of like a 70s style uh thriller uh i just want to see more of that and i mean that's what i was hoping to see in edgar wright it's more of a straight up comedy essentially uh, almost like a superhero buddy comedy hmm. which who knows what we'll get at this point but i mean peyton reed he's still more of a comic uh focused director at least i feel so hopefully that will work out
2: uh, i was thinking by the time this airs uh marvel will probably at least announced a few movies at comic-con but i guess what do you what do you want to see that that uh
1: i mean i'm sure guardians 2 is in there uh just because they've what they've claimed Six release dates at this point, and they clearly have set up a sequel for Guardians. So, uh, I'm imagining that will be in there in terms of stuff I would love to see. I mean, I'm still waiting for my Runaways movie, which was in development 10 years ago. It's about a, I mean, in terms of genre stuff, it's a teen kind of superhero drama. Kids run away from home when they find out their parents are supervillains. And then, uh, just each of them has a little bit of a. One's an alien. One's a mutant. One's uh, her parents are time travelers. Like it's all over the place. And I would love to see that movie uh, in there. But I, I. St- very much doubt that will happen but i mean who knows they've made a guardians of the galaxy maybe, exactly so. <laughs> and i mean that movie's got a they, they've got a telepathic raptor in runaways sure. i mean come on he could be the next rocket raccoon old lace
0: and, and i think you do have a point that just the the scope of this film and just the sheer weirdness of the film and the way they make it work within the marvel formula is so promising in terms of it really does open up just pretty much infinite possibilities um and infinite gauntlets but that's a whole nother story (laughs) well thanks for joining us oliver where can listeners find more of your writing
1: uh i write regularly for the av club and uh, also for la times hero complex so you can go over there and then uh also i have a twitter and tumblr both of those are just oliver sava so easy to find just my name
0: and i'm given to understand that you do a little writing about comics
1: (laughs) I do a lot of writing about (laughs) comics. Lots of comics happening in my life right now.
0: All right. Thanks for talking, guys. Thanks. In May 2014, Amy Nicholson, the head film critic at LA Weekly, published a controversial article titled, How YouTube and Internet Journalism Destroyed Tom Cruise, Our Last Real Movie Star. The article makes a case that the rise of YouTube and online tabloid journalism has harmed Cruz by exposing him to ridicule after a career built on carefully managed personal secrecy and a groomed public image. The piece was controversial in part because of Nicholson's strong defense of Cruz as an actor and a person, and there was plenty of blowback, but as is so often the case, a lot of the people critiquing it apparently hadn't read it and were arguing against points it didn't make. Meanwhile, Nicholson has followed up with her first book, Tom Cruise, Anatomy of an Actor. Like the other installments in the Anatomy of an Actor book series, the book examines one performer by dissecting 10 key roles throughout a long career. And again, Nicholson comes across as a supporter of Cruise's career, impressed with his skills and his work ethic, as well as his ambition. Here to talk about the article, the book, and Cruise in general is Amy Nicholson. How are you doing, Amy? I'm
3: great, Tasha. How are you?
0: <laughs> doing just fine. Um, I was just reading the book and uh, finding it really interesting. Why, how did this come up, Come about in the first place? Like Why are, why are you interested in Cruise? How did you end <laughs> up writing this?
3: Well, you know, what's so funny is if a year and a half ago somebody told me that I would be described as like a huge Tom Cruise supporter, I would have just started giggling. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, The book actually came about very randomly. I got an email from uh, the publishers who live in France saying that they had read a review I wrote of Jack Reacher, um, you know, the Tom Cruise movie that he did in December uh, of a a year and a half ago, which wasn't that favorable about Tom Cruise as a star. It just sort of talked about how he wasn't really an actor. He was just a personality. And so they asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book dissecting his career, and I thought I was going to be writing a book that was about how a mediocre talent became an incredibly brand savvy modern superstar and then i ended up realizing i thought he could act after all and the book completely changed under my feet i feel like i sold my publishers a wrong bill of goods <laughs> was it was it just rewatching those movies that
0: impressed you was it looking at how he's managed his career like what what changed your mind
3: it was really realizing that I'm as guilty of stereotyping him as I just sort of naturally as I think a lot of other people are. I always thought of him as just, like, the big grinning cheeseball movie star of Cocktail. And I didn't realize, you know, everything that was going on behind the scenes. Like, even looking at Cocktail, he actually didn't like that film. He thought it was going to be a very serious drama about capitalism. And when it turned out to be, like, this vehicle for the Beach Boys and nostalgia and, like, horrible blue cocktails, he was, <laughs> he was aghast. He couldn't stand it. Hmm. And you realize there's this like narrative of Cruz that's under the surface of him trying to be taken seriously, uh, and it never really working out. And I guess there's something in me that likes a good underdog story, even though it sounds really weird to think of Tom Cruise as an underdog. Hmm. What uh, were you prepared for the
0: reaction to the the article back in May?
3: Um, if I can be honest, I haven't really read any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I've kind of adopted a policy of like. Eyes closed, ears covered to, to, to blowback, yeah, especially because I think a lot of the blowback was related to Scientology, and that was like kind of a conversation I thought was not one I wanted to have so much, or at least I think that conversation's been had plenty and it didn't need to be had with me. Isn't that it sense kind sense? of...
0: I mean, the point that you're making in the article is that all of this stuff is is a little irrelevant to his actual acting. You know, that there's a an image that's been built up by all of these tabloid uh, articles and uh, stuff like YouTube video clips that's kind of irrelevant to his career. But at the same time, you're comfortable with just completely separating Scientology from his life when you're talking about his his career and his work.
3: It's true. That was actually something I've really... Like soul search sounds a little pretentious, but like before I started the book, I really sat and thought about it, and I, was, I wondered to myself, how am I going to you know, talk about things like Scientology, things like Katie Holmes in this book? And for a while, I thought, I, I, as a personal dare, I wanted to see if I could even do a book that didn't mention Scientology at all, hmm. because I feel like we know that story so well right now. I, I thought kind of perversely, the interesting thing to do would be to take him seriously as an artist, which I think we haven't been doing.
0: I think not reading the comments uh, on the, the internet as a whole is often a good thing. I mean, I do can't, you read your
3: comments? Um,
0: I mean, I read comments at the Dissolve because we have the best commenters in the world. Uh, yeah, you guys <laughs> you know,
3: really the, do. You guys really do. Can you teach our commenters at LA Weekly a couple of things?
0: No, I'm sorry. We we cannot <laughs> share these commenters. They're they're far too important to us, Aww, and we guys, keep them in a pen at night to make sure I'll they don't escape. Comment over at us. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> uh, but I mean, th- even some of the like the response articles at uh, at other sites a lot of them took on a, a patronizing tone that I found kind of annoying. And some of it was, well, basically the tone was, eh, it's just another Tom Cruise, Cruise fangirl. And I think you know part of that is just plain sexism, and it's pretty boring. But part of it, I think, comes from a place of being astonished at someone taking a, a, like a positive tack on Cruise in an environment, in a very negative internet environment where it's, it's fashionable to mock him. Like, was that, was that ever an issue for you? Like, did you feel, contra- like, any sense of contrarianism? Like, being aware of sort of the narrative around him?
3: It's true. I mean, especially feeling like I was part of that narrative for a long time. You know, that I was sort of dogpiling on him, t- too. Because, it, it, to be honest, I mean, it's really tempting. Like, whenever anybody achieves that much superstardom, you sort of want to be the one to kind of poke a hole in it and deflate it. And, and so I, I, feel sort of, I feel sort of culpable in that whole atmosphere. Like to me, the Tom Cruise internet piece was definitely about Tom Cruise, but I think it was just as much about the fact that I think that could happen to anybody, you know, maybe not so loudly, but the idea that something we do online or um, can can online multiply and can bite us in in ways that we're not even expecting. I thought it was like a cautionary tale that related to you and me as people who are sort of, you know, public-ish. And then also to everybody. I mean, to the girl who got fired for tweeting the wrong thing before she went on a plane to Africa. It, to me, it's... the piece was almost as much about the web as it was about him. He was just the biggest example of how I think it went wrong. And the first example. Because he wasn't prepared for it. You know, I think now you and I know that if we say the wrong thing, we, we know what can happen. But at the time, I don't think he was aware of that. Because, you know, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook were just really starting, and Twitter actually not even at all.
0: So in the book, I mean, the, the structure of the anatomy of an actor's books is, you know, here are 10 roles, 10 chapters, sort of breaking down the what the actors are trying to do and where they are in their career, the importance of these films. How did you pick the 10 films that you ended up using as profiles?
3: <laughs> I watched all of them even the bad ones even the one where he goes to Tijuana to lose his virginity have you seen this one <laughs> no I haven't that's <laughs> the very first one it. yes yeah, yeah I talked about that in the introduction yeah I watched all of them th- from the beginning and it was interesting that there were films I just assumed I would include that I ended up not finding that interesting towards the end hmm. like like I, everybody uh kept saying we've well, got to include collateral and for some reason I just didn't feel like collateral fit in the narrative of what I wanted to pick yeah, because people point to collateral as the first time that Tom Cruise ever played a villain. And actually, when you look at his career, he's been playing a villain, like, kind of the whole time. Even when he's a good guy, he's sort of a bad guy. You know, like, I mean, in his very first um, major film where he became famous, he's a guy who's running a brothel out of his house, you know? Uh, so, and then you kind of have to get into the secondary layer of, like, well, I only want to do one Cameron Crowe film. So is it going to be Vanilla Sky or is it going to be Jerry Maguire? Right. And that I was really wrestled with forever because I think Vanilla Sky is just so interesting in that it takes the Tom Cruise persona of like rich, handsome, you know, gorgeous girlfriend and makes him lose everything. But in the end, I decided I had to go with Jerry Maguire. It was a lot of Sophie's choices like that. <laughs> <laughs> what what else really hurt to leave out? It hurt to leave out Minority Report, because I think that film is really important to people. But I just thought talking about War of the Worlds was so interesting. You know, given, I, I think we forgot about the controversies he stirred up by talking about um, trying to have Scientology play a part in like healing the firemen who were there at the World Trade Center. And I wanted an excuse to talk about that.
0: You make such a point about his his choices, like the choices in his roles. Do watching like certainly he's someone also who has a reputation for you know fiercely controlling what he what he wants to portray and how he wants to come across. Did watching all of these films back to back and kind of building this narrative give you more of a sense for him as somebody curating his image through the the roles, not just that he's picking, but that he's playing on screen?
3: Yeah, it really did, especially because I wrote the book chronologically. Like I wrote, I decided to just do it in order, so I could really feel you know, everything that came before and the uncertainty of what was going to come in the future. Like to me, the films that I find so interesting are the ones that he did that people didn't want him to do, it, like um, Interview with a Vampire, which is kind of a weird cornball flick. I mean, did you see that in high school with all of your friends, like I did?
0: Not with all of my friends, but yeah, I, I saw it fairly young.
3: Wait, you, you saw it alone in the no, dark. No, no. <laughs>
0: I don't remember who I saw with. That was not uh, that was not a really important part of my my youth, I guess.
3: Uh, it was kind of an important part of mine. It, it, I just love that film so much. And I wasn't expecting to, I thought I was doing that one sort of as a joke, because I want to talk about how upset people were that he took that role. Because we forget that people were so furious. It, everybody at the time wanted Daniel Day-Lewis to play the part of Lestat. And the idea that Tom Cruise, this like superstar, was going to play this like androgynous, sexy, blonde European, they're furious about it. And I like that he wanted to do that. I like that he was always sort of going against the grain.
0: I think some of my favorite parts in the book are where you're talking about his kind of his relationship with Stanley Kubrick and Stanley Kubrick also being a notorious control freak. And some of the there's certainly stories in here that I was was not aware of in terms of the (laughs) horror going on on set. What, were there things like that that you, you didn't know that you found out in research that particularly surprised or intrigued you?
3: Yeah, that Eyes Wide Shut chapter was rough. I think that was actually the hardest one for me to write. Because I I mean, to be honest, I don't really like that film very much. I, I don't know how you feel about it. What do you think about it?
0: I've only seen it the once. It really feels like something I need to revisit. Because I didn't like it at all the first time uh, I saw it, but in the way that Kubrick's films do, it's haunted me and it's stuck with me. And it seems like, as so often with Kubrick's films, it's one of those things that you need to watch once to understand what it was or what it, what it feels like, and then watch it again to actually experience the movie that you have instead of the movie you're expecting.
3: Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Like, the first time I watched it, I almost wanted to walk out. Of the theater, it was the part where Tom Cruise uh, he walks into the bedroom and he sees this mask on his wife's pillow, and there's a gong, and it just starts going gong, gong. And I, I swear, I looked around the room and I was like, if if I'm the only person who walks out right now, I'll be shocked. And then I I forced myself to sit just out of masochism, and then to have to watch that movie three times to really intensively study it for this chapter, or I was I was dreading, but I knew it was one that I had to do. So I actually, this is sort of funny. Have you heard of the Stanley Hotel Film Festival? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. So it's this, it takes place in Colorado at the hotel that sort of half-inspired The Shining, and um, coincidentally, the, the horror. it's like a horror film festival. It's been going on for two years. I went there the week that I was writing this chapter, because I was like, what better setting to write, like, the Kubrick chapter than to be here? And um, they were actually showing, they were showing The Shining, like, on TV and repeat, and I was just trying to get in this crazy Kubrick headspace. And, yeah, just, it seems like such a perfectly bad combination tom cruise and kubrick you know not just the idea of like the hollywood movie star and the like auteur crazy pants director but the idea of you know the 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 actor who wants to please and the director who will never be satisfied mm-hmm. that's the part that i just found like so interesting yeah. it, they couldn't have been worse for each other <laughs> it certainly sounds like it from that chapter. Uh,
0: one phrase from the book really jumped out at me. You you call Tom Cruise's career calculatedly modern,
3: yet curiously old-fashioned. C- can you elaborate a little on that, what you, meant, what you meant by that phrase? Yeah, sure. I mean, he was one of the first actors to realize what was going to be the future of cinema, which is the international draw of the box office. And he so smartly has always, from the beginning, been one of the first people to really go to international premieres and try to build up his fan base abroad. I think he really realized the power of the foreign dollar before anybody else did. And then I think he passed on that wisdom to Will Smith when they became friends in the 90s. And you can see how that really helped Will Smith, too. And I think that maybe have gone a little bit overboard now trying to do like international blockbusters. But he's always had an eye on staying relevant and staying big, while also trying to do roles that appealed to him, at least up until the the semi-modern era. Like, up until around 2005, I feel like he had a real way of picking classic star vehicles. He didn't do disposable films. He didn't do dumb comedies. I mean, even some of the actors that we really respect, you know, some of the actors in this series... Uh, that the Callez has put together, like Jack Nicholson and Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, you can look at their resumes and you can see that they made mistakes. I feel like he very rarely made a film that was a mistake. He always wanted to be like the classic biggest thing on the screen. And when he wasn't the biggest thing on the screen, he wanted to be at least the most interesting character on the screen, like when he did Magnolia. It's kind of like what you uh, brought up a second ago when you were talking about choices. To me with Tom Cruise, What's most interesting about his choices isn't just what he said yes to, but it's the fact that you imagine all the scripts he must have said no to. Because he's the guy that everybody wanted, and mm-hmm. he, that's who he's been for 25 years. And especially at the very early stages of his career, when he was broke, when he had like a, a mom and three sisters who were super poor that he wanted to help support, and he had this pressure to to be the guy who, who uh, fed everybody. I mean, this is a guy who's been working to support his family since he was 13. That he said no to all these quick, cheap cash-ins after the first one losing it, to me, that shows a very mature, beyond his years, faith in the fact that he was going to make it work. And then the fact that he did, I think, is twice as, as surprising.
0: Hmm. You make the point at the very end of the book that he still hasn't won a Best Actor Oscar and he still hasn't directed a feature film, even though he said that that's something that he's interested in doing. Do you, I mean, do you think that it's really necessary to further his career for him to do either of those things, given, basically given all of the success that you're talking about?
3: You know, I think I would have said no in the 90s. And I think today, I think the answer has to be yes, because I think his career has gotten so far off track with trying to please people that he needs to remind people that he can act because i think he's become the actor he never wanted to be he's become like kind of the the movie star and not who doesn't get a chance to prove so much his talent like what i really want to see him do beyond all measure is to do a tiny part in an interesting film again like magnolia and get that oscar no- nominee and then like and then change the conversation
0: Amy Nicholson is LA Weekly's head film critic. Uh, Tom Cruise, Anatomy of an Actor, came out on July 28th and is widely available. Uh, Amy, thank you for talking to us. Where can listeners find you online besides LA Weekly?
3: Uh, Sure. Why don't you find me on Twitter, which is at the Amy Nicholson. And if you live in New York or any one of our sister paper cities, uh, Stephanie Zaharik and I share duties. She is the best. I love her so much. She is pretty awesome. (laughs) Thanks so much for talking to us. Absolutely, Tasha. Thanks for having me. This has been great. This week's
0: game comes from a suggestion Nathan made, which feels a little bit to me like Ray choosing the form of his own destruction in Ghostbusters. But it seemed like a fun idea, so I decided to roll with it. I'm calling this The Movie Game, Movie Game, and it's a trivia game about films where people play games of all sorts. We're once again monkeying with the score mechanics, because that's a fun thing to do. So here's how this is going to work. There are two rounds. The second is a simple lightning round. First person to get it, gets it, and we move on. But we'll start with a tiered round, in which each movie gets three questions, progressively more difficult, worth one, two, and three points respectively. Whoever answers the first one right controls the board and gets first shot at the next question. But once you get one wrong, control passes back to the other players. The Scott Tobias rule is in effect, but it's always just one point off for a wrong answer, regardless of the point value of the question. That may seem complicated, but as with most games, it'll seem simpler once we're playing. Here to try it out are Keith Phipps, Nathan Rabin, and Noel Murray. All right, guys, are you ready? Yeah. Yes. 1984's The Last Starfighter is about a teenager recruited by an alien to fight an evil empire in space after he proves his skills by becoming the highest scoring player on an arcade game designed to test humanity's skills. For one point and control of board, who plays the alien who recruits... Nathan Raven. That would be the music man
4: himself, Mr. Robert Prest.
0: Correct. You get a point and you have control of the board. So second question for two points goes directly to you. What is the name of the game that proves he can handle himself in space?
4: going to say it was called The Last Starfighter.
0: Not quite. All even right. even. You lose a point and control passes back to the no. board. N- uh, Noel and Keith, what was the name of the game? Never saying that.
2: I've seen it, and I'm blanking on the name of the game, so I'm going to...
0: Okay, the name of the game is just Starfighter. Oh, oh. Oh, man. I
4: thought that's what it
0: was. And uh, Nathan buzzer barks in sympathy. Mm. Uh, So this is anybody's question, uh, number three. What is the generic name of the little gunships that Alex and the other pilots use to fight the Kodan Armada?
2: (laughs) I didn't get Starfighter. Are those real words?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, they're called gun stars. We have have achieved zero for the round, (laughs) and we're moving on. Number two, the 1997 David Fincher film The Game is about a board investment banker played by Michael Douglas, lured into something that's either a game or a conspiracy to defraud, rob, and possibly kill him. For one point in control of the board, who plays the brother who recruits him into the game? (laughs) Wow, that was pretty simultaneous. I, I think we may have the first ever uh, instance of, of Noel really missing out because of the, the like half-second Skype delay. But, Keith, I think you have that one. Who that's, plays his brother? That's Sean Penn. You are correct. You have a point and control of the board. For two points, when an employee of the shadowy game company drugs Michael Douglas, where does he wake up? Mexico. Can you be a little more specific? Doesn't have to be the town, but the general locale.
2: Um. The, to you, no, blah, blah, the Baja Peninsula?
0: <laughs> As I say, not not the geographic location, but he wakes up in a, a very telling location.
2: On the side of the road?
0: Not really. I'm going to give it to you because you've got Mexico. <laughs> uh, it's two points, but he wakes up in a cemetery. Uh, I believe he's actually been buried. Has he? Or he's in a coffin. He may be in an above ground coffin. Nice. I don't remember that detail, but he's definitely in a cemetery. You still have control of the board for three points At one point towards the end of the film, he jumps off the roof of a skyscraper. What is he emulating when he does that?
2: What is he emulating?
0: Yes. This is a motivation question.
2: A suicide?
0: Yes. Can you be more specific?
2: A man committing suicide. (laughs) (laughs) That is more specific. What is a man committing suicide?
0: (laughs) But does not really get at the point of what's going on in the film at that moment. Okay. Noel, you have control. What, uh, what is he emulating?
4: I think it's his father's
0: suicide. Correct. His father killed himself in the same way at age 48. He is also 48 and depressed. That is why he needs the game. So we have Keith at three. Uh, Noel, with that one question, also has three. And Nathan uh, has picked up his buzzer off the floor. So he's the real victor here. <laughs> All right, here we go. Number three. There were two very similar movies, one in 1995 and one in 2005, about kids playing board games that dangerously come to life around them, and they have to finish the games to get to safety. Nathan, you're going to say this? I haven't asked a question. Let's hear the answer.
4: <laughs> oh, Carver Uh I'm totally thinking that the, the motion <laughs> pictures are uh, entitled Jumanji? Uh, I don't know, CGI elephant? Uh, and then the other answer is Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and Weird Al, I lost on Jeopardy. Those are
2: my three <laughs> answers.
0: That is a lot of answers for not the question. No. Um, you, all right, you lose point. All right. Technically, you should get a partial credit, but you, you, you got to the question before the question. Uh, here's the, for one point in control of the board. Name both of those films. <laughs> null.
4: All right, Jumanji is one. Yes. Ah, um, oh, see, so the other one starts with a Z. Mm hmm. Uh, Zathara?
0: Yes, you are yeah. correct. I was wondering if you're just going to make a random noises and hope that actually. I've uh, actually
4: seen that. And I totally forgot
0: about it. It's not necessarily the most memorable film. All right. So, Noel, you have one point and control continues. Uh, For two points, one of the things that both films had in common was that they were both based on picture books by the same author-artist. Can you name that author? Uh, The Polar Express by Chris... Van Ellsberg? Correct. Hmm. Two points for you. You right. are at six. Uh, for three points, still having control of the board, what famous voice actor voiced the killer robot set loose in Zathura?
1: Um, I'll... Uh, famous boy, uh, uh, Mel Black. You are <laughs> you
0: are incorrect. So you lose a point and play passes. Do either of you know who the famous voice actor is?
4: Having seen uh, Zathura, I'm going to say no.
0: All right. <laughs> keith is looking glum uh the answer is frank oz oh all right so we've got noel at five totally keith at three that. and nathan at negative one he look, i went back and watched the scene it doesn't sound like frank oz at all but it is an interesting little detail number four in the thoroughly delightful 2007 documentary the king of kong a fistful of quarters an upstart challenger tries to take the world high score record in donkey kong from the longtime champ for one point and control of the board name both the champ and the challenger
2: Tasha, Pink.
0: Tasha, why do know, you do this? I know,
4: days? I know, I one of these. I'll
0: give you half credit.
4: Uh, can, oh, can
0: I sure, buzz on, on it. Nobody else are... is. Nobody else is uh, fighting
4: for it. That would be Mr. Billy Mitchell. You I'm are the correct. Hot sauce king slash <laughs> King Kong king of. Uh... Let's say the southwest
0: Mexico. Well, let's see. You have control of the board as we go to our two-point question. I don't think you're going to have much problem with this one. What is Billy Mitchell's non-video game claim to fame as seen in this film?
4: (laughs) I would would say that he is a hot sauce proprietor. You
0: are correct. You are at two and a half points. Uh, For three points, as you still have control of the board, what is the name of Walter Day's organization referenced repeatedly throughout the film that certifies the score record holders in arcade games? goodness i um, guessing the, the Game Masters incorrect mm. and that's a point for you Keith oh, Noel any idea no nah, I can't remember <laughs> okay it's called Twin Galaxies yeah. now, keep in mind oh, that the, yeah. the three point ones are, are designed to be at least a little difficult yeah those,
2: those are the hard okay. ones yeah. <laughs>
0: you can see the look keeps giving me right now. <laughs> Number five. In the 1982 movie Tron, computer programmer Kevin Flynn, played by Jeff Bridges, is digitized and dragged into a computer world after he attempts to fight the programmer who stole his games and built a company around an evil AI that's also stealing programs. For one point, in control of the board, what actor plays both Flynn's human adversary and the master computer he fights in the game? I know somebody knows this. <laughs>
2: Keith Is it Max von Sydow No oh. it is
0: not yeah. Nathan Nolan I, guesses? I'm i getting
2: to this In laser age At some point But I'm not there yet It's
0: been a while Alright
2: Keith
3: I can picture his
4: face But I cannot think of his name
0: Nathan, you're the walking IMDb. Uh, I'm,
4: I'm totally blinking on it.
0: Okay, it is David Warner. Uh, so oh, okay. your two-point yeah, yeah. question goes to anyone and everyone. The primary game that Warner's character stole from Flynn is not called Tron. What is the name of the game that Warner stole, seen at the beginning and end of the film? I <coughs> No. Oh, here
3: we go. Uh, light Cycle?
0: no it's not i'm sorry it's called space paranoids Mm.
4: space paranoids
0: space paranoids yeah you see somebody playing it it's got the uh those flying Multi-dimensional things with two feet. I guess that's not very descriptive and could also be a description of a person. It's
4: also my favorite fireside theater. <laughs>
2: this is what happens when hippies make, go on to grow up and make science fiction movies.
0: <laughs> All right. For three points, uh, again, open to anybody. What is the name of the recent animated TV series meant to bridge the gaps between the 1982 Tron and the 2010 sequel Tron Legacy? Came out just last year. <laughs> Uh, all right, we're going to call that one. Uh, Tron the college years? <laughs> <laughs> because you didn't buzz in, I'm all not right, going to subtract right, a point for that. All right. No, it's called Tron Uprising. All
2: right. Well, let me pause here to point out why this is particularly embarrassing, which is because uh, we have this habit here of posting articles on the Zob and having these commenters that know a lot, you know, that's weigh in with like, stuff that we didn't even think of that are really better informed than we are. So I imagine all our listeners at home are like, Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. it losing credibility every we do one of these games, Tasha. All right, carry on. I will, Sorry. I will just
0: point out that, uh, that Scott Tobias identified the Goodfellows trailer within two seconds <laughs> of it starting last week. And if anybody does not think that gives him credibility, I will fight them. That term squeal is
4: pretty distinctive.
0: I will fight them with my light cycles as well. All right. Uh, last question in the first round. Number six, in 1983's War Games, a computer with access to America's nuclear arsenal thinks it's playing a game called Globo-thermonuclear war, and it may actually set off the bombs in response. For one point in control of the board, what's the supercomputer's backdoor password? Keith? Oh, oh, you didn't answer, ask the question I thought you were asking. <laughs> That's why you listened to the question. Uh, it's,
2: it's, but I believe it's Jonah.
0: Oh, you are incorrect, sir. Uh, Noel, I heard you buzz in. What do you have?
2: Joshua? Joshua
0: uh, not quite can you can you be a little more specific uh, Joshua one <laughs> <laughs> you are incorrect Nathan do you have it uh, I'm
4: guessing Josh
0: oh dear uh, all right negative one point for everybody <laughs> um it is Joshua five that is the age of uh, the little boy when he died uh, so, All right, so number two the this goes to anybody who wants to take it Wait, the little boy's dead <laughs> spoiler Nathan
4: Man.
0: Besides Globo Thermonuclear War, name three games that the super- supercomputer knows how to play. <coughs> Noel? Uh, Tic-Tac-Toe. Yes. Uh, chess. Absolutely. And I'm going to presume also Checkers? You are correct. Two Ooh. points and control of the board. Let's see if you can get number three. Uh, number three, what is the supercomputer's response to the question, is this a game or is it real?
4: Oh, gosh.
0: Um i'll give it to you again this is a uh, just one of the most iconic moments of this film okay the supercomputer is asked is this a game or is it real what does it say What is the difference? Yes, three points. And my never-ending respect, which you already had, so you won't even notice the difference. All right, if my uh, math is correct, and it's difficult to say whether it is because I don't have a supercomputer to help me here, I'm getting Keith at one, Nathan at one and a half, and Paul at a board-dominating eight points. Wow. Uh, He he got got two of the obscure ones. Um, And now we're going to go into the lightning round. We're going to wrap these as quickly as possible. Any of these questions can be answered by anyone. Number one, in the 1982 Tom Hanks movie Mazes and Monsters, a group of friends obsessed with a, dungeon, with a Dungeons and Dragons-like role-playing game have to deal with one of their friends losing touch with reality and believing he's actually his character. At the end, they have to stop him from doing what in order to cast a spell? Anyone? Never seen it. Me neither, but I assumed somebody had. This is t- another one of these the iconic TV, 80 movies.
2: TV yeah. movie. It's a mm, TV movie. Technically. Technically, it's shown show on TV, not in theaters.
0: Sounds like you know a lot about it, Keith. Do you know the answer? <laughs> nope. All right.
2: Oh, it was adapted from a novel
0: by Ronan Jaffe. Damn. <laughs> Wait, why do you think people are going to lose respect for you? All right, fine. That's amazing. Uh, he is, in fact, trying to jump off one of the Twin Towers to his death in order to uh, complete Jeez. a spell. Good Lord. Uh, number two. What game is being played in Hoosiers. <laughs> Nathan, that'd be the game of basketball. You are correct. Number three, the 2001 Indian sports epic Lagan is about a group of Indian villagers assembling. Cr- cr- cricket. Oh, it's not the question. That isn't the question. Keith Phipps. In fact, the, the next very next word, assembling a cricket team to play against a group of occupying Brits, Nolan, Nathan, what are the stakes of the game? What are they playing for? Oh, gosh. I can't remember. All right, eliminating a, a crippling tax debt that the Brits have uh, have put on them, <laughs> because why else would you play cricket for three and a half hours? Number four, the 2005 sports film *The Greatest Game Ever Played* is a biographical feature based on a champion at what game? Keith <laughs> hey Phipps. I think, I think Nathan. Has oh, that. it's it's the. Uh, that would be golf. You are correct. Very boring you get game of golf. A point. Number five, in the 1939 Jean Renoir classic *The Rules of the Game*, what is the game being played in the title? What's the game? In the rules of the game. Oh, now I am going to lose respect for <laughs> <you>. <laughs> it's, been I, I, I,
1: it's
2: been a while since I've seen it.
0: I'm stretching this one out because I can't believe no one's going to jump in on it. I don't want to. I don't want to gamble my points. I don't, I don't, I, you I don't have points to sure. burn, Noel. You answered this question wrong like four times right I, now.
4: My, my, my Okay. okay.
0: No worry. Uh, chess? No, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It. I would have accepted pretty much any answer that wasn't a uh, an actual physical game. It's the rules of, of class, the rules well, of romance, yeah. Yeah, that's what yeah, social that's what protocol that's what count.
2: Yeah. Of course it counts. No, I mean that's that's. When, what I- I was, was going to say it's like a metaphorical game, man. But but. Uh. And you would have gotten extra. a point
0: for that, Keith Phipps. And I would have, and so much respect. Just, oh. Oh, the
4: game of life, man!
0: I would have accepted that too. It pretty much anything you want to say uh, is is part of the rules of the game. In the rules of this game, you're the worst dungeon master
2: ever. <laughs> you
0: just, you just, Shut up, or I will kill your character, Blackleaf. <laughs> you just blew
2: all of our
4: minds and the minds of all of our podcasts. Listen all right,
0: up. I'm going to blow your mind with one final question. All right, What hugely popular, if you didn't like the last one, you're not going to like this one. What hugely popular 1988 black comedy was shot under the working title Fatal Games?
2: Key Phipps. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels.
0: No. No. All right, fine. Noel and Nathan. Ooh, 1988 black. Noel? Uh, Ruthless People. No. Nathan, do you want to take it?
4: Oh, I'm totally drawing a to blank here. That's uh, bo- 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 not Penn and Teller Get Killed. Uh, it is It was not. released in 1987. It's not *Were the Roses. Uh, because think that was think one of the most
0: popular black comedies of the 1980s. One of the most popular black comedies of the oh, 1980s. Oh, shoot. <laughs> now Noel is kicking himself and, and Keith is flailing. Oh, God.
4: Uh, bo- 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 okay, fine. The
0: okay. first person to say, say it. Fish but- Called Wanda. No, 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 oh my god I'm never playing a game with you guys again You don't read the rules Uh, It was Heather's Oh. Heather's
2: working title Uh, It came out in
0: 1989 Fine, you (laughs) (laughs) re-win my respect And you get five points But Noel still wins the game with a hefty seven points Thank you guys for playing this game I know you're never going to play a game with me again (laughs) I'm just going to sit in my room And play Donkey Kong until I can beat Steve Weeby And now it's time for the Blitzkrieg recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell, where we let two people recommend films or film-related culture. And for an added level of competition, we make them go head-to-head with just 30 seconds before the annoying buzzer goes off. This week, we have the all-intern edition of 30 Seconds to Sell, pitting outgoing intern Charles Bramasco. Hi, Charles. Hi, how's it going? Against incoming intern Vikram Murthy. Vikram, welcome aboard. Hello. Charles lost the rock-paper-scissors game we used to determine order, so he's going first. You have 30 seconds, let's hear it. Alright, um, so it's it's a movie called Banda Darwaza. It's like Dracula
4: but it's the Indian, it's the Hindi version of Dracula. And so with this movie you get so much more than just uh, Dracula that looks like um, Blackula's cooler brother for one. The appearance of Hindi Dracula is really great. He comes with this sort of retinue of evil followers. There's a shriveled up old woman who can turn people's blood into poison. She's really great. Uh, there's a man who can project his own sort of holographic image and read minds. Uh, and not to mention that the soundtrack is really really super because
0: (laughs) okay well that is i mean that's an exciting recommendation i do love a good handy dracula but you went overtime. so vikram let's see if you can recommend something that sounds that cool and come in under time go um i've been reading a book this week called uh, lynch on lynch uh which is uh chris rodley's basically uh interview with david lynch in which he asks him you know a bunch of series of questions related to in and around his career um it's a good read because lynch provides very oblique answers that like are very good insights into the way he makes films without really directly kind of talking about the films itself his opinions on dreams and growing up in philadelphia are really really interesting and i recommend the read because it is fun (laughs) wow under time by hundreds of a second Wow, I you know if you'd both come in under time, I think I probably would have had no. to hand it to Charles because poisonous blood. Right, that, that was cool. Hindi Dracula. That's and the, even the title sounds amazing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Vikram came in under, and boy, I will I will welcome any chance to understand what the hell is going on in David Lynch's head because I do love his movies, but I find him to be a one opaque bastard. Oh yeah, He's a yeah. Super guy. It's, it's not going to be less opaque with the book. <laughs> well, wait a minute, you, you don't want to say that before I hand you the victory. Here, I'm handing you the victory congratulations Vikram now you you can spoil all my dreams thank you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thanks for playing guys thank you you're welcome And now we've come to the end of episode 25 of the Dissolve podcast, but expect a double dose of returning host champion Scott Tobias in weeks to come, provided he survives his family vacation. Until then, true believers, you can find The Dissolve on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, and at thedissolve.com. You can send questions, comments, topic suggestions, or game ideas to feedback at thedissolve.com. And if you keep those ratings and reviews coming on iTunes, maybe next time I'll reward myself by having kids and taking them on a trip. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. Thanks for listening.